Hi, I'm Louise. And I'm John. And you're listening to the DCIF podcast, Changing World, New Opportunities, an investment podcast designed for members of the DC community. We'll be chatting with asset managers who are all passionate about DC and getting investment right for the members. Investments in DC have changed a lot, so we'll be helping you, the listener, to stay up to date with the latest, from real estate to alternatives, the challenges of trusteeship through to addressing climate change. This first series will focus on the changing world we find ourselves in and the exciting investment opportunities for DC plans. Keep up to date with our work at dcif.co.uk, where you can sign up to receive our research and get invitations to our launches. You can also follow us on Twitter at DCIF underscore UK and on LinkedIn, where we are the Defined Contribution Investment Forum. Fantastic. Let's get on with the show. Hello and a very warm welcome to this week's episode of Changing World New Opportunities. Uh, this week, John and I are chatting to Sarah Sheen, who is Head of Global Defined Contribution at PGM Real Estate. Uh, this is the first in a three-part mini-series about real estate. Um, and to kick it off, Sarah, John and I have a really great chat um, just about all things real estate. It's a kind of real estate 101, everything you've ever wanted to know as a DC pension scheme person, um, but might have been a bit afraid to ask. So yeah, it's a really nice all-encompassing chat and a good introduction to real estate as an asset class. Hope you enjoy. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us today, straight off a flight. That's pretty heroic. Happy to be here. <laughs> so we thought we might use today as an opportunity to do a sort of global real estate 101 for trustees who maybe want to learn more about the asset class. This is episode one of a little mini series we're going to do on a few different dimensions of real estate. But this is, I think, going to be an introduction for people who perhaps are, are less familiar with real estate. So I thought maybe, Sarah, we could start at the very top and you could tell us why global real estate in the first place. Why should investors look at it? Happy to. I think that, you know, there are a number of attributes of global private real estate that would be attractive to DC schemes. And then we can talk about some of the considerations there. But just at a high level, certainly the ESG focus that you can find in the real estate, given that it's a tangible asset class, makes it attractive. And often with private assets, you have greater control and transparency around that ESG governance. In terms of scale and liquidity, you know, the real estate market is a large liquid market, more liquid than folks might anticipate anticipate. It's the third largest asset class globally. So something that we feel strongly should be incorporated into any portfolio and certainly has been used in DB plans for a very long time. So as we think about bringing those asset classes to DC, we believe it, it has a place there. Attractive long-term returns. So typically what we've seen in DC schemes with private real estate is the use of core real estate. So a return expectation of somewhere in the 6 to 8% range. And you're typically looking at commercial assets, primarily composed of apartments or multifamily, industrial, office, and retail. We typically call those the core four. But now you'll also see expansion into things like alternative classes such as storage or life science buildings, senior housing as well. I'd also say private real estate has diversification benefits outside of the typical 60-40 equity bond portfolio. And that downside protection is generally coming, the diversification generally comes through downside protection. And that's because of the income-driven returns that you typically see from private real estate. And then finally, inflation protection. You know, Usually in a rising rate environment, the property values and rents that you're investing in tend to rise as well. Right, that makes sense. 
And of that sort of typical six to eight percent return over the cycle, if we call it that, how much of that comes from the income side of things versus the capital appreciation? Can you give a feel for what the split is and, and whether there's any major differences when you think about the key geographies across the world? Sure. Historically, the income component has been a little bit more than 50%, typically 60-40 on the income side, certainly with core, maybe even a little more depending on the cycle. Where you see periods where the appreciation may be greater is if we think of the GFC, for example, right? We're coming out of a period of depressed values, and then you typically see the appreciation play a larger role as we did in the 2011, 12, 13 time. And then also, if we just think about the market that we've just gone through in the last couple of years where we've had record returns in a number of real estate classes, certainly in the US, a 21% year in 2021 was not what we would typically expect. And we're still sort of coming off of that with elevated returns through the first half of 2022. I think we now expect as you know, we look at Asia, which has struggled in recent times, right, relative to some of the other regions, or we look at Europe, I think what we expect to see around the world, even in the US, is a certainly a cooling of some of the records returns that we've seen. And also, I think there's a mixed view out there. I don't think that we're calling for an all-out downturn in the real estate markets, but it's simply a, a resetting of the expectations to go back to those high single-digit returns versus the double-digit. And thinking about the various sectors that real estate investors can get exposure to, you talked about the core four, I think it was. I'm quite interested in the alternative sector because, to my mind, we're seeing more and more allocations to these and certainly in the benchmarks we use here in the UK, alternatives is creeping up as a proportion of it. You know, what's the most interesting part of alternatives, do you think? Is there and are there regional differences in terms of what categorizes alternatives? I think there are certainly regional differences. I think storage is one that is seen globally across the regions. Depending on where you are, you may have different supply demand characteristics in play. But that's one I think that's become pretty central to many portfolios. I think really interesting things going on in the alternative space include things like this life science notion. And for me, it's really a subset of storage, but cold storage is very interesting. So if we all think about ourselves as now consumers who may be delivering more groceries to ourselves or restaurants that are farm to table and they want their food brought to them every day, they need cold storage facilities very close to them. So I think that that's definitely something interesting that you can find both in the public and in the private space. So I think that's probably one of the most interesting things. Yeah, I've never even going. thought about that, you know, with my weekly supermarket delivery habit. And that has changed over time. And I'm sure a lot of people are doing the same thing. We're all getting more and more addicted to convenience. And of course, that has real estate implications. Yes. And I think when we consider some of the alternative asset classes, they actually behave similarly to the core asset classes. So, you know, cold storage looks a lot like industrial, right? And if we think about other asset classes, like the senior housing, for example, that looks a lot like multifamily apartments. So there are a number of alternatives, but the characteristics when you look at them in terms of the long-term leases, the high-quality tenants, they end up looking like the core four, but they have their own niches. That makes sense. So I guess we could talk a bit about if you're a DC trustee listening to this, what are your main considerations? I mean, how do you access real estate? What should you be thinking about in the first instance? 
So I probably goes without saying, right, that real estate should be thought about in the context of a default of a multi-asset solution versus yeah. standalone. Although I will say occasionally in the U.S. we do see it offered as a standalone. That's certainly not the norm. I think also in terms of managing the rebalancing activity, we're in an interesting environment now where in the markets where real estate is done very well, the clients using it in their portfolios are actually balancing away from real estate, right? So the thing that really aids in managing rebalancing is having liquidity alongside. And that can be done in a couple of ways. We tend to see a REIT wrapper wrapped into DC solutions so that that can provide an additional liquidity sleeve. Although some clients, because it's a multi-asset solution, are investing directly in the real estate and then using the other 90 to you know 85% of the portfolio that's fully liquid to manage the rebalancing activity. I'd say those are the, you know, liquidity is something we spend a lot of time on and then the daily valuation. So the daily price is obviously critical to the DC market. And then it's a matter of consistency around deriving that daily price and having that process be fully transparent. In terms of here in the UK, liquidity is a, is a key thing. And you know, over the last six or seven years, there's been a couple of key events, which has meant that clients have been gated from getting in or indeed getting out of these sort of funds. So from what I understand, in the US, you typically tend to have an allocation to REITs, which helps with liquidity. And is that a fair thing to say? That is fair. So I would say while not all products have avoided gating, even in the U.S., those that have liquidity sleeves, and we typically use a REIT liquidity sleeve of 15%, have managed to remain open even through the GFC, through the last year or so of very heavy rebalancing while REIT markets were quite volatile because that will erode your REIT sleeve, and that's something to consider. But that that has led to the success of these funds staying open. The other thing I think that fiduciaries should consider is as you're building that multi-asset portfolio, thinking about the guidelines that are in place. So we've had several plans say to us in the last year, I wish my bands had been wider. If my bands had been wider, I could have let the asset classes that were performing run instead of having to strategically rebalance right away. So some flexibility in the process is, is probably good to think about as well. And when you've got the, the REIT liquidity sleeve, is it easy to find a sort of REIT that is equivalent to the underlying portfolio, or is it fairly sort of clunky and you just say, right, well, I've got a global portfolio, so a global REIT sleeve is, is fine. To what extent can you sort of marry up the REIT with the underlying assets? You typically can. So with a fully US-driven fund, a US, usually we're using ETFs. Global, same thing. Although it's interesting, when global is looked at, there's often a consideration to potentially use active on the global side more so than when it's a straight US product. So I do think you can get fairly good alignment. And I think the other really important thing to consider is the liquidity sleeve, that the REIT that you invest in is truly for liquidity, right? Not to necessarily arbitrage between periods where public will outperform private or vice versa. And you're really keeping that within a strategic band in order to provide actual liquidity. So I think in most cases, though, managers are looking for using some sort of passive solution yeah. to bring the cost down as much yeah. as possible. So it's effectively to avoid the cash drag. That's so you're right. trying to get the beta, but in a liquid, liquid format, I suppose. Exactly right. What's cash drag, John? Well, given where interest rates were historically, which is basically next to nothing, and if 
commercial real estate was delivering six to eight percent, if you had what fifteen percent, I think you mentioned, then that's you know fifteen percent of your portfolio doing pretty much nothing. But from the way it sounds, is that you can get that fifteen percent pretty much performing in line with the the physical assets you've got within your portfolio. Yes. And when it's 15% of a portfolio, the REITs certainly do have an impact. You know, when they outperform, life is great. And when they don't outperform, you certainly feel that within the liquidity sleeve and the overall performance. But 15% of the fund doesn't necessarily drive the return and it keeps you in the market, as you said. And in terms of the, you know, the core four, I guess they've all got very different drivers. And given where we are at the moment, retail has, has struggled for obvious reasons. It now seems to to me at least it feels as if that's shifting now to the office space. And it's kind of you know, given it's a fairly important part of global real estate portfolios, just wonder what your sort of view is on on offices and you know to what extent they will have an influence on returns going forward. I do think that office is one area where we have the most uncertainty that remains today. So obviously, the trends that COVID accelerated were already in place before. So more telecommuting, less people in the office. And the question remains, how much space is needed for the companies that are occupying space, particularly in large city centers, how much office space will move to the suburbs versus staying in the central business districts. But I think the interesting, you know, sort of flip side to that is, at least in the US, and I I think this is a trend globally as well, you know, we've spent the last 10 years shrinking the space that each individual uses in these offices. And now the next move is to reconfigure spaces to provide more space for those that are in the office when they actually come. So, you know, square footage will be down, but how much down, right, is really the question. But it is an area where I think there's still pain that is yet to come and some things to be worked out before we have full transparency. I think it's a, it's an area where if you look at a lot of the major indices, it was a much larger proportion, say five, eight years ago. I know in the US it used to be 40%, now it's 25%. So you know a lot of the portfolios have already spent the last five, eight years bringing those allocations down. There's probably more room to take them down further. But that's one where it's probably too soon to call exactly where that's going to end up. That's so fascinating, isn't it? It just shows again how investment just kind of underpins life, doesn't it? You know, walking around London, as I've been doing the last couple of days, it does feel so much quieter than it used to. And, you know, as investors, you then have to try and figure out if that's going to stay that way for the long term. It's just fascinating and difficult. What's interesting is for DC schemes, typically the funds that they're investing in are really looking at long-term leases, high quality. So it's hard to draw the line between all of us sort of in our towns or, you know, walking past a lot of buildings that may not be open or have occupancy today. But typically, the large managers you're thinking about for this space have decent tenancy. They were having their leases paid monthly, even during the pandemic. Not to say that there's not pain in the space and and potentially some more to come, but there certainly seems to be a dichotomy between the smaller end of the market and the larger end. And one of the things, if you go back to offices in particular, again, sort of the view internally here at Aberdeen is that the office market is going to become polarised. You're going to have the out-of-town secondary type of assets and you're going to have the central offices that are potentially brand new, kitted out based on the way people want to work, very ESG friendly, which kind of brings me to ESG. And as an asset class, how is 
the asset class responding to the ESG demands of, I suppose, asset owners and indeed tenants themselves? I'd say it's certainly at the forefront of everything in the real estate world. And not just because I think we all can get our heads around the fact that it's the right thing to do for the environment and for our communities. But at the end of the day, you know, I think we're real believers that this is right from the investment perspective as well. And if we get those components right, then it is a a win-win for the fund, for those that invest in it, and for the communities where those properties are. I, I think with ESG, tangible assets like real estate, you can actually see progress being made, right? We can check certifications and we can compare ourselves to others in the universe and what they're doing in the space. And I'd say the good thing about ESG is it's a very positive peer pressure, right? If someone's putting solar panels on their building, you know, you're going to put solar panels on yours. If if there's a water certification or, you know, some sort of green building code that becomes very common, it's very difficult to not do that if you want to be successful. So I think that there's a lot of positive momentum being driven in the space that is measurable and where we'll be able to see impact over time. And I think the the other component that doesn't always get talked about a lot, right, we certainly can talk about the environmental implications. Governance is table stakes, right? We've all been doing that for a very long time, but the social piece is so important in this world in terms of commercial real estate being successful in the communities where it is. So I think we'll see more and more on that front. To your point, John, folks want to live, work, and play in buildings that have the amenities that they want, that are good for the towns and the cities where they are. And I think the ESG principles are bringing all of that together at the right time. You've given a couple of examples of you know how a building or an asset can be sort of ESG aware friendly, solar panels being one of them. What other things as landlords are you doing to the buildings to make them more ESG friendly? Yeah, I I think, you know, solar is a big one. I think there are work that can be done around clean water in communities that's being done with buildings. I think that there's a number of things being done in terms of the materials being used versus what might have been used in the past. So I think that there are a number of things going on with the buildings themselves, where you build etc. I mean, all of these things, how you repurpose versus whether you knock and begin from scratch, right? All of those things, I think, are part of that solution. And EV charging points, I suppose, must be a a key thing. You know, people charge their electric cars. Absolutely. That's a big one, actually. I think we'll all be driving electric cars if we're not already within 10 years, certainly. I think my next car will be one. Yeah, we've got a lot of controversy in our local town because there's, I think, two EV charging points in the whole of town. Oh, my. I know. It's not a lot. I mean, I imagine some people have like private parking spaces where they might have installed one. But in terms of the ones that are publicly accessible. How about you, John? Are there many up in Uh, Scotland? There's quite a few, but there's not as many as you need. And I suppose that probably links into another podcast that we'll do about infrastructure. And, you know, given all the amount of money that's sitting within the, the UK pension system, there's a lot of money that could arguably fund better infrastructure when it comes to charging points. But we don't want to, you know, spill too much now, but stay tuned for that exciting episode. I think ESG more generally is incredibly important for our clients for a number of reasons, but they also now need to report on the ESG metrics of portfolios. And that spans all asset classes. Now, some are much easier to do, public equities, public 
Cobra bonds, etc. When it comes to real estate, it must feel like a challenge to try and get the data, particularly when you are relying on the tenants themselves. I'm wondering, is that just a UK phenomenon or is that something that just spans the globe in terms of getting the ESG information that we need? So I think that that spans the globe. Data collection of any kind, right, is always difficult when you're dependent on others. Although I think it is an area where we continue to make very good strides. I would say, based on what we see globally, certainly the UK and Europe are out in front of anywhere else in the world of what's being collected. I think the US is very quickly trying to catch up to that. But definitely, Europe has led the way on that in that regard. Say you're a trustee board and you are thinking about introducing real estate. Where should you start? What do you think trustee boards should have as a conversation sort of internally before they decide to put out a mandate? Yeah, I think that first and foremost, right, it always comes back to what are you trying to accomplish? And the reality is it often comes down to what do you already have, right? When you have a default already established, you know, we're generally not starting from scratch. So it's a matter of thinking about what's already in the portfolio and how real estate or any other addition complements what you already have and the role that it plays. I I think the interesting thing is, you know, when you think about infrastructure or real estate or private equity, whatever the, the private asset may be, they have different roles and characteristics. So sometimes they're lumped all together as, well, private assets will do this in my portfolio. Well, you know, real estate's going to give you downside protection, but I don't think that's why most folks are investing in private equity, right? So I think it's a really important consideration to think about, what you intend to get out of the asset class itself. And I think that trustees have a very broad network that they can utilize between consultants, between each other and what others are doing. And I I think having a lot of conversations around what you're trying to accomplish and learning from others is a really important part of the process. Because I guess most DC schemes have some form of allocation to real estate at the moment. And from my understanding, most of it tends to be direct, though REITs are sort of creeping in. If you wanted to increase the allocation, say from five to seven, what other areas in terms of direct real estate do you think DC schemes should be looking at that perhaps have maybe just stayed in DB space, but there's no reason why they can't make it through to DC? Personally, I'm thinking around sort of long income type funds. Is that something that you guys are are seeing in the US and, and hearing about more globally? So we are hearing interest. I don't know that we've seen implementation yet, but the conversation is certainly around historically the exposure in real estate has been really core exposure. How could we mix additional assets to include core plus, to include even in some cases opportunistic real estate in the right allocations? And I'd say that's typically coming from you know, when you're working with some of the sophisticated consultants who are very comfortable doing this and have used it on the DB side, although most of the, the master trusts and the schemes today have used all of these asset classes on the DB side. I would also say that the notion of long income is very much of interest around the world. Again, not there on implementation yet, but certainly something to think as we spent, you know, we spend a lot of time and energy talking about accumulating in these plans. And as we begin to think about the decumulation phase and how folks spend down and think about the 30 years after they retire, that's going to be a very important consideration. I'd say one of the interesting topics in that space on the long income is how you you use private real estate debt or private credit or even a, a multi-asset sleeve of the two that could potentially help in that endeavor. 
And just thinking about, you know, the income, because as you mentioned, as members enter the retirement phase, an asset class such as real estate is perfect in a number of instances because that rental income stream is, I suppose, depends on the nature of the tenants, but it's pretty much guaranteed and it's inflation linked. So running for the benefit of the listeners, could you just explain a little bit about how rent works and how the inflation environment impacts the rents that get paid? Sure. So the income-driven returns of real estate are literally coming, right, from rents being paid on a consistent basis. As we've talked about in the podcast, in high-quality commercial real estate, you're typically looking at long-term tenants with access to credit when they need it, which enables them throughout various market cycles, you know, generally to be able to pay those rents. As we think about, you know, inflation in the environment, so we're obviously in a period where it's rising pretty rapidly today, and it will likely be here for some period of time, the properties themselves are typically appreciating during that time, which you'll benefit from at some point down the road, but also when you have the ability to raise rents during that time, which is typically what you see happen, it does help you keep pace with inflation. And obviously, the shorter the lease, so in a hotel, it's overnight, you know, in in an apartment, it could change annually or even more frequently than that. The shorter the lease, the quicker you can reset, the better the asset class can keep up with the inflation. If you've got a a 10-year lease that's a long net lease that is, you know, not going to reset for a while, you may have CPI kickers built into that potentially, but those will adjust more slowly. I'd say on the development side also, typically when you're looking at building in the space, you are incorporating CPI factors into those contracts before the development starts so that you can also keep pace with inflation if you're starting from scratch. And if you're a tenant in there and inflation is 10%, when it comes to next resetting the rental payments, do they get have to pay the full 10% increase or there, is there a notion of a cap and, and collar in terms of what they can expect to be an increase next time they're sitting down with their landlord? I'd say it depends sometimes on the asset that you're looking at or the property type that you're looking at. It's generally not necessarily, in my experience, a one-to-one because the thing that's happening underneath is, you know, the income component is keeping pace on some level, but the appreciation is also increasing. So, you know, typically it's some factor, you know, slightly below what the actual increase is. And I think, you know, as we sit here today, one of the bigger risks going forward might actually be on the tenant side because inflation is so high, given the nature of their business, they might not be able to pass on the costs straight through to the end consumer. So as we move into 2023, it might be less about the sector that would be a challenge, might actually just be about the tenant that kind of sits in whatever the underlying asset might be itself. Is that something you're kind of thinking about when you're deciding which assets to hold on to or indeed sell? It absolutely is. I'd say one of the biggest drivers in real estate investing today is the notion around demographics, right? So who are the tenants? Where do they want to be? What economic situation are they in? So that is absolutely a factor to be considered. And the demographic trends can shift relatively quickly. And when there is an environmental shift like we're going through right now economically, I think we will see the strain in 2023 in particular, which is part of the reason for some of the mitigation of some of the returns that we've been seeing over the last couple of years. And, you know, we'll probably be on the lower end of what you typically see for returns in these asset classes short term. 
I guess just to wrap up, Sarah, we've really grilled you, sorry. (laughs) But just to wrap up, are there any kind of killer questions that you think trustees should be asking when it comes to those initial conversations with real estate investment managers? You know, what are some great questions that you've been asked recently? Absolutely. I think it's vital that particularly when you're using real estate in a DC scheme, you ask, you know, how does the liquidity work in normal conditions? I think everybody would think to ask that. But especially when times are great, it's still really important to ask, how does the liquidity work in strange times? You know, how does it work when REITs are down and liquidity sleeves are eroded? How does it work when things are volatile? How does it work when there's massive rebalancing away? What are the protocols in place? What levers do you have to pull as an asset manager to provide additional liquidity? Do you have a line of credit, for example? So I think liquidity is the conversation we have first and foremost, used to be a lot of conversation around valuation and that daily process. I'd say that's still very much on the minds, but more generally accepted than maybe it was 10 years ago. And there's more consistency there. So certainly liquidity and and valuation seem to be at the forefront of sponsors' minds. And so it's less about the attractiveness of the asset class. It's actually more the operational aspect. That's absolutely right. John, we spend... 80% of our time talking about what we call mechanics. I think generally speaking, when a consultant or a sponsor comes to us, they already know and accept the merits of the asset class. The question is always, how do we make this work? Great. Well, I mean, on that note, I think we'll wrap up. But Sarah, thank you so much for coming all the way here to speak to us today, all the way from sunny Washington. (laughs) We've really appreciated learning more about real estate and we hope everyone enjoys listening to this too and that, like me, you'll come away much better educated. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Changing World New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum. Head over to dcif.co.uk, where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, follow the DCIF on Twitter and LinkedIn, and subscribe to this show on your favourite podcasting platform. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Changing World New Opportunities.